Hey everybody, welcome to episode 32 of the Go Get Outside podcast. This is your host, Jason Milligan. Welcome back again. Welcome aboard. On today's show, we have Italian software developer, caver, canyoneer, world traveler, consummate adventurer, search and rescue team member, and all-around entertaining, passionate Italian guy, Luca Carabini. So if you remember back to episode 22 with Dr. Tommy Day, you may recall we talked about how we had been out over the last few days with some canyoneers in the Pacific Northwest region. Well, one of those people was Luca, who's on today's show. He and his girlfriend, Tiffany, are pretty much the authorities of the Pacific Northwest canyons, even though they both live down in San Diego. But they spend so much time up there and they've established so many new canyons up there that when someone in the southwestern canyoneering community wants to head up that way, everyone always says, oh, get in touch with Tiffany or Luca. Luca's also one of the most prolific contributors to RopeWiki, which is a locally managed website for canyoneering specific beta. He also on occasion develops different features for that website. So if you've ever gone to RopeWiki or you've spent any time in the Southwest or the Pacific Northwest doing canyons, you have probably used some of Luca's beta or other features that he developed. So back in January of this year on a rainy day in San Diego when a group of us tried to go canyoneering and failed because of the intense rain and the intense mud that my car got stuck in on the way to do a canyon, we instead sat down in Tiffany's home and Luca and I recorded this conversation. So let's not waste any more time. Let's go talk to Luca Caravini. My name is Luca Chiarvini, and well, I'm Italian, but I'm legal, so nobody get alarmed. <laughs> I've been living here for a long time. So you're allowed to visit Arizona? I'm allowed to visit Arizona and Utah, you know, despite the rumors, yes. <laughs> been canyoneering and caving uh, since 2005, so about 10 years. But you were doing things before that, right? Uh, I was doing things before that, but uh, not properly or not with the right training. But uh, yeah, it's only after my ex-wife left that I started doing what I really wanted to do because she was completely the opposite. She was like no kayaking, no big biking, no nothing. She just wanted to watch TV all the time. And after she left, you know, I was like, you know what? I always wanted to go into caves, and uh, and now that I have nobody that uh, you know stopping me, I'm gonna do it. And uh, canyoneering, the same thing. When did you move to the U.S.? 2000. I came in uh, uh, the year 2000, right after the dot com bust. That's great timing for you because you were a developer, right? Yes. Uh, so was is that why you ended up in the U.S.? Well, it's a long story where I ended up in the U.S. Uh, but that's okay. Uh, it's a long podcast. <laughs> okay. Uh, basically, uh, when I had just joined the company in uh, Barcelona, because I was living in Barcelona, they needed uh, an engineer to be sent to the U.S. And they asked me, as soon as I joined the company, would you like to go to San Diego? And I was working with the government there, was developing video games and doing all the stuff on the side, and I said no. And then after three months, they came back and said, you know, would you like to go to San Diego? And uh, I said no. And then after six months, they came and they asked me, when would be a good time for you to go to San Diego? <laughs> you know? And I couldn't say no anymore. So I said in May, and uh, it's gonna, it was going to be six months. And then uh, for a series of coincidences, when I arrived, they didn't have any cars available. Hertz gave me a convertible with five miles, and I put 15,000 miles on it. The company hosted me on an on apartment in La Jolla. And then after uh, three days that I joined you know, the office here uh, where I was an exchange engineer, the whole division shut down went out of business and they said you know we're firing employees you're not our employees we don't know what to do with you you have three months vacation till we figure out what we want to do with the next division so i was paid vacation for with paid you know luxury apartment and a convertible in the u.s so i went to vegas los angeles san francisco all over and then even when i had to work uh, it was like we work in the morning and then at 2 p.m we would go surf it was just like amazing it was like it is fucking awesome um and Somehow that is still your life. <laughs> no, no, not quite as 16 good. 16 years <laughs> later. 
<laughs> not, not quite as good. But then in the year 2000, uh, I decided to move. And uh, it was not as good as then, you know, uh, but uh, it's still good. I still like it to live in San Diego. Well, you live in San Diego, but you're never in San Diego. I am. People doesn't think I am. <laughs> but I actually am in San Diego a lot because I have a daughter that goes to co- uh, to school. I'm waiting. She Next year, she's going to college, but... She's been my chain. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> uh, she's been my chain, in fact, uh, for the last five years. Yes. Well, hopefully she'll listen to this. What's her name? <laughs> her name is Senia. <laughs> so, so you should thank her right now for chaining you. Down. Oh, she she knows she knows that uh, you know. I'd be so happy when she finally goes to college. You know, <laughs> I'll feel so fulfilled as a parent. You know, and finally I'll be free. You know, because right now it's kind of tough. It's kind of tough. So, so wait a second. You say it's kind of tough, but in the last year, how many places have you been? Because you travel more than few. probably anyone I know. No, 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 no. Please. Sonny Lawrence is <laughs> <laughs> worse than me. Okay. <laughs> worse. I mean, he's better than me. Okay. <laughs> uh, but I, I've been to a few places, but mostly hijacked by Tiffany to, to Oregon, Washington. But then I organized a trip to British Columbia. Uh, then Tiffany was off uh, her project, so we went to uh, Turkey and Jordan. Then uh, in Christmas, everybody has vacation in Christmas, so we went to Chiapas, <laughs> you know, to do Charradero. I know there are some amazing caves down there. And then I had uh, my dad that turned uh, 70, and um, since I was a kid, he's always saying uh, he wanted to do uh, to go to Antarctica. One day he would go to Antarctica, and, and he's never done it because family, because work, uh, and now health was going to become an issue. And, and then me and my brother decided let's go to Antarctica so we we went to Antarctica uh, with him and I came back just uh, you know a few days a few days ago but this is not the normal year because <laughs> I'm responsible parent okay <laughs> she's uh, now turning 18 so that's, so you can be irresponsible uh, that I can be irresponsible again <laughs> yes <laughs> yes so tell me about this Antarctica trip because that's one of those places I'd really like to go, but I've, I've never been. It seems like everyone I've met who's ever been to Antarctica, they talk about it like it was some special life-changing event. Did you feel that way? Did you feel like you went to some place different than anywhere you've ever been? Or, or are you going to say, oh, Antarctica was bullshit? <laughs> <laughs> Antarctica uh, was good. This, the preamble is, I'm not a cruise person. I did a cruise many, many years ago, and I decided this is bullshit, I'm never going to do this again, because it's like being everywhere but not being actually experiencing anything, you know, anywhere. And this was with my father, so didn't want to go on a too small boat, so we took a boat that was like 70 passengers, which if you go to Antarctica, you should get no more than 100, absolutely, because uh, they cannot have more than 100 people on the beach at the same time. So if you have more than 100 people, it means that you only go one time a day to disembarkment or to the beach or an excursion, and that's it. They cannot go many other places. They cannot go in some of the bays. So it has to be a small boat, uh, 70 people or less. And the rest, this was my father's dream uh, to go to Antarctica. I didn't have any particular interest to go, but it was amazing having penguins, you know, walking in front of your feet and and see how they build the, these penguin highways and they they climb up, you know, on these cliffs. They're crazy climbers uh, that go up these cliffs because that's where the snow disappears first and, you know, may, being able to nest up there uh, makes just a weak difference but it's, that means the chick survives or the chick dies so uh, those are prime locations for nesting no? but they climb up like crazy and, and you see them sometimes sleeping with someone sleeping and falling and he fell like <laughs> head first and, and he crashed on the ground and then he stands up he looks left right he's like somebody did somebody see that did somebody see that no okay I'm gonna just keep walking you know like nothing happened <laughs> and it's like shit you know they're super durable they uh, um, if they hit you with the with the uh, fins uh, with their uh, wings they can break your leg oh they're, really they're, did, you, did you get close to them or are you oh, yeah, close we to them? were like there you know at my feet um, you can, supposedly you're not supposed to go um, more than less than five meters from them but they can walk close to you if you stand still and that's perfectly normal and they're curious they look at you they come by they look at you 
look at your feet and then they go by. They're super funny. And then you see, it's like a documentary. You see them, you're in the middle of the colony. Uh, you see that there's a skewer landing in the colony, all the penguins, you know, uh, firing the alarm and the skewer goes around trying to steal eggs and or steal sometimes chicks and, and all the penguins. Nobody moves. They all sit on their nest, but they try to pick on him from a distance. <laughs> but, uh, you know, of course, he's completely undisturbed going around, see what he can find. But it's like being in a, in a documentary, you know, and the whales, I was kayaking with the whales and they just giant uh, tails uh, flipping in front of me and oh, so you did get to kayak like along yes. the glaciers and well uh, yes and no because <laughs> you know this was on because a boat it was bullshit. <laughs> yes <laughs> this was on a boat i said okay i'm spending 10 days on a boat i'm gonna go crazy uh, i'm gonna pick one that has also kayak and they had kayak but uh, it turns out that with the kayak um they don't let you go as close as to the ice fibergs or, or the ice fields as you do with the Zodiac. Uh, they don't get to uh, let you go as close to the seals and to the um, uh, whales as you go with the Zodiac because it's dangerous. They don't, they don't let you go through narrow passages uh, that uh, the Zodiac can go through, but it's too narrow, too dangerous for the kayak. So they're super, super uh, conservative. And one of the days I said, you know what, fuck this shit, I'm out. <laughs> put me in a Zodiac because it's the fifth Zodiac that goes by that uh, narrows section. This is, we were in an amazing place, an island that they seldom visit because of weather and ice. And it's an island that is geological of, uh, wonder. It has tunnels, it has uh, caves, it has narrow canyons uh, that go um, through the island. And we were just going around in circles because the kayak guide didn't feel comfortable taking people down any of the, you know, five different exits from this, you know, amphitheater. And I, after the second, you know, merry-go-round, I told him, you know, I want to go on at Zodiac because it's the fifth Zodiac that zooms by us and goes through a channel or goes through a tunnel. I want to get on at Zodiac. So I, <laughs> they put me on at Zodiac. And in fact... 30 minutes later, everybody went on a Zodiac because uh, they said... Because uh, they want to do whatever Luca does. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's because they saw that they were just going around without going anywhere because the, the kayak guy... And I understand. Then I, I you know, told the guy, I'm sorry for my impatience the other day, but you have to understand, if I sign up for a kayak, it's because I thought we were going to do something more adventurous than win a Zodiac. And we are doing, doing less. He was telling me, yes, but not everybody's your level. No, we have to keep it safe for everyone. And, you know, this is the only way is keeping, you know, more distance from icebergs that can flip or, you know, somebody gets in a narrow section and get crushed by the ice or whatever. And I understood, you know, but it's like, that's not what I, I, I wanted on when I signed up for kayaking. But it was good because like several days were good. Uh, some of the days were not that good, but in general, it was it was uh, it was very fun. You but you made your you made your dad happy. Yes, my dad was, f and, and one of the days. So they did the, this this particular boat. They did two excursions a day, one in the morning, one in the afternoon. So I would pick one to go kayaking, the other stay with my dad and my brother, and it was good because it was you know fifty percent a family, fifty percent adventure. But the, the the scenery is fantastic. The scenery is fantastic, and especially if you go go with a boat that has you know eighty passengers or less, because you will regret it. You will spend your time waiting in line. Otherwise, you mentioned going to the beach and seeing penguins, but did you get to trek into the glaciers or onto the land much at all? Just a little bit. Just, just a, little a little bit, bit because the, even when we went into the uh, glaciers, they would come in. The the crew would the land first and set a, a rope limiting where people would go. Mm. And even when we climbed up, uh, we were up at the top of a peak and we couldn't see the glacier from the other side. So I, I said, I'm going to go further. And the guy told me, no, you can't. He's like, I'm going to go further because I know I can, uh, you know. It's at your own risk. It, everything is always at my own risk. <laughs> okay, it's this like, is a very. <laughs> this must have been a very odd trip for for you, Luca, because yeah. you're not used to to people no. telling you what to do no. and limiting your activities. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I tell you, the people that were the crew uh, were more like my style than the passengers. But yeah, I had to adapt because my dad would never be able to do something like that. But the people in the crew were uh, amazing. No, but the problem is that they were super, super. I wouldn't say uh, safe. 
ultra safe. Um, you know, like you cannot get more than a, a two body distances from an edge. I know I'm in search and rescue, you know, but I know that I'm, I'm wearing boots and I know that I'm, you know, properly grounded and I know that I can, I can get a little bit closer. It's like, no, 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 you can. Yes, yes, yes I can. <laughs> you know, it's like, yes, you're not the boss of me. Yes, I can. Uh, at your own risk. Sure, it's always at my own risk. But it was, it was nice. The scenery is fantastic and the scenery and the history when we attended some history talk uh, one of the persons we had as a guide on the on the boat uh, that did presentations worked for 40 years in the antarctic as a british um, uh, antarctic survey and he was telling us of the eruption that happened in deception island when he was deployed near that area and how they had uh, you know to abandon the hut and then they had to go back to the hut and how the glacier melted in in just a, a split second and this flood of mud went through the hut with them inside you know but miraculously missing them and and brought away half of the fire of the of the hut and buried the new uh, Ranger over tractor that they had just received a week earlier, no? but all this was for me was very amazing. And uh, he was also telling us about the research that he did in Antarctica and how they penetrated the lakes under the ice and they found these uh, ancient life forms that they still haven't published papers. And it was really really interesting for me. It was really interesting. I was you know half cruise on one side but half adventure trip on the other. You'll see if you could go back with an expedition so they don't. Control That's the way do. to do it. In fact, if I go back, it would be working on the boat as you know as, as a staff <laughs> or as an expedition cruise um, the best way to do it i believe is to go with uh, with uh, and it's also the most expensive by the way is go to with a yacht uh, you have to get special permissions uh, but it's just paperwork but then you can go anywhere you go you want and do anything you want right now antarctica is a world park nobody really owns it uh, it's open to anybody you just need to file a little paperwork so so maybe you could build a house no, you cannot build houses <laughs> or hotels. There's a, they explained us about the Antarctic Treaty, which is like these 28 countries getting together to decide what to do and the claims that they have. Uh, it, it's, there's a whole politics behind that is, is incredible. But how Argentina, um, England, British, uh, you know, and Chilean claim parts of the Antarctic and, and how the U.S. says, I don't give a shit, I don't recognize anybody's claim and I can claim anything anytime I want. You know? <laughs> but the Antarctic Treaty is, is saying, okay, we don't recognize any claims, they're all on hold and right now everybody can set a base any, anywhere and this is a free park for Probably everybody. like the moon, if we would spend more time on the moon, would be treated. Yeah, except that, you know, Argentina now are sending pregnant women so that they, uh, they start send, giving gift certificate of people that was born oh, in Antarctica. Really? Yes. They have postmasters and the postmasters don't recognize the British stamps. They have to be Argentinian stamps. You can see that at some point there's going to be some decision is this Argentinian or is this British you know is this Chilean or what is this they paint the Argentinian flag on all the Argentinian hats so the, you can tell there's some territoriality uh, territoriality um, issues there that have not been resolved and someday will have to be faced for now it's everybody is agreeing that is everybody's territory and everybody is open to set a base there, a scientific base. You just mentioned a few minutes ago that you were search and rescue, and you also said you got into caving and canyoneering about 10 years ago. Yes. So how did you get into those things? You weren't doing them in Italy, apparently. <laughs> so uh, actually, canyoneering, I did the very, very first time, long time ago, in Spain, in 95. It was organized by the company, Hewlett Packard. I didn't know what it was, and how they explained to me, it's going through a river. Sometimes you swim, sometimes you walk, and sometimes you wade through water and then we went and did a canyon with guides and there were two canyons one was uh, difficult and the other was easier I had my girlfriend at the time that then would be my wife and we decided to go to the easy one it was quite an adventure because we were never done anything like this and the guides were completely inexperienced we dropped uh, places where we shouldn't drop uh, jump places where we shouldn't jump and at one point I, I landed face first and in five inches of water and luckily nothing happened but my my glasses break. And so you know how you were supposed to start this story? Uh, why? How? Classic Luca story, which was... <laughs> I almost died. Yeah, I almost died. <laughs> well, I almost... I didn't almost die, but uh, pretty much. <laughs> yeah, almost. It was not that bad, except one point where the, the guides wanted us to do a slide, where we didn't see the 
reception and I refused. And then when it turns out that the reception was a, a rock that would have split anybody doing the slide in half. And the guides were telling us to go down there because they'd never done the kind. It turned out afterwards that they never done the kind before. But anyway, my girlfriend at the time said, never do this shit ever again, <laughs> ever, you know? But I kind of liked it. And when uh, we went back, I remember the other guys were telling me about their trip that was the supposed the Heart Canyon. They were telling me, dude, we had to, you know, put a line through the river and then click on it and boom, the river would push us through to the other side. Then we had to climb up this rock. And then there was a hole and he set down a rope and he told us, you need to rappel on the hole. You wouldn't see anything. But when I tell you, you need to lead, let go of the rope. And then, we, you know, they tell you, let go and you fall in the water. And then you you see water coming in from underneath you have to take a big breath and swim under and swim under uh, in this tunnel and exit on the other side and just when they were telling me they, they told me oh you would have loved it you know they must have seen my face like yeah I would have loved that you know, okay. <laughs> that was Barranco Inferno but I never did again because of my uh, ex-wife didn't like it and then after she left I had seen uh, some paper in the backcountry desk in Zion it's like this this is canyon, this is canyoning I, I know I have done this before no? but uh, when I asked them he said no there's no guys allowed in the park you have to learn by yourself and then do it he said really so i had to learn i i googled it i found that they were doing a, a rendezvous in zion a um, couple of months later and i ran it with a couple of friends and without any clue of what we were doing just i had done many years earlier <laughs> we went and try mission hook up with somebody the experience that can take us down canyon no gear no experience nothing and i met a guy that was the nicest guy in the world i thought back then uh, rich carlson told us what to do and give us equipment and for free and he was the super nice person ever no? and he still is despite the many people you know uh, hate him but um <laughs> he's done he's done some great things some bad things too but you know he's he He's uh, always acted in, in uh, with a good heart, and I thought he was the, uh, the nicest guy ever. And after that, I started uh, doing it on my own, and I, I haven't stopped. And the caves were pretty much the same. The cave I, I was writing a, a book, hiking, where they said, "Oh, there's some holes in and caves. Nobody knows exactly how long they are, and they are in the desert." And giving brief description of where they were, still with my daughter and my wife, and we went without knowing where we were going. I organized a group of co-workers uh, with their families and. And we, we find a hole in the ground. It's like, I don't know if this is a cave or not. I don't know if we'll be able to come out or not, but let's go check it, you know? And people were like, oh, Jesus Christ, where are we? This, this cave goes like a, for a mile. It's the mud caves in the Anza Borregon. And at some point in one of the caves, it's two of the kids or one of the kids that, that take off and then one gets into a, a very small hole in the wall and disappears, <laughs> running. And I look, I go get him, you know? And I get in this, this hole and it gets tighter and tighter and I'm absolutely panic you know and i reach a point where i can see a skylight and i'm fuck this shit i'm not going any further it's like david david come back you know, come get me. david come back immediately you know i was panicking and david eventually came back and then we went back and i went back a year later with the grotto with the so-called uh, the so-called grotto organized a trip there and i joined and they went and then i found out that this cave was called etiquette that had an exit and we do that through trip you know and i was like wow you know i love this and i've been caving uh, since then but at the beginning yeah i had my bad experiences like everybody but i i just loved it since the beginning how did you get into search and rescue then uh, and which search and rescue uh, san diego search i'm and rescue, no or? i'm with the san bernardino cave team so it's specialized oh, okay. in uh, in uh, a cave rescue but also do uh, mountain uh, desert uh, whenever we get cold but cave is kind of the specialty whenever there is a cave or a mine they call us to do uh, you know rescue or recoveries and unfortunately the last two have been recoveries but they also call us when there is a uh, you know somebody lost in san jacinto or lost in mount baldi and all these places and sometimes uh, san diego they call us mad caves they call us many times when there is a rescue mad cave thunder canyon cave but uh, how i joined is because um, i befriended uh, sony and sony has been Search and Rescue for many years. Uh, you know, talk to me about it. Uh, it's like you should uh, join Search and Rescue. And I thought the people in Search and Rescue were all super experienced, only experts allowed. And he told me, no, they teach you from scratch. Like there's people that's never even hiked before that join the Search and Rescue and they get trained from scratch. You know? And I joined after I signed up for joining, but before I actually became a, an active member, there was a rescue in one of my trips uh, in Thunder Canyon Cave where a guy got trapped in a crack for uh, 11 hours and almost 
died. And uh, almost died, it means he almost died. Because uh, when the first uh, rescue team, the San Diego team, Borstar, came, their uh, technical analysis was of the situation was, this guy's fucked, you know. And they was, told that, me, was that their official report? There was official report. The, ofi- the official report, they were radioing on the radio. The victim is Fubar, you know, and I didn't know what that meant. You know, I, in fact, in my report uh, then that I published, uh, somebody told me, you misspelled. Uh, I spelled it F-O-O-B-A-R. <laughs> and I said, no, no, it's F U. B A R is like I don't know what that means. Like it's a technical term. <laughs> they use, <laughs> they use uh, you know, fucked up beyond all recognition. Uh, they use it when uh, there's a plane crash, a helicopter crash, that zero chance of survival. And uh, I didn't even know. And they were reading the victims are Fubar, uh, you know, call the cave team. Um, and after we've been telling them call the cave team for ten hours, they finally said uh, we don't know how are even going to get the body out. So call the cave team. But the cave team had been alerted uh, by uh, one of my friends uh, in advance. So when they called them, uh, we need the cave team. The cave team said, we are right behind you. Where's the helicopter? We are boarding right now. You know, we are all ready to go. And they arrived there at 11 hours, uh, luckily, because the guy would not have lasted 12 or, or 13. Well, he would not have lasted. And they saved the day. They got him out. When the other Serdan Charansky team said that we don't even know how to get the body out. Not, you know, forget about saving the guy. We don't know how we're going to get anything out of that. Because he was jammed in a nine-inch crack, horizontally jammed, with no way to get back or forward. But if he was able to get in, there should be a way to get him out, right? Well, he went in standing on, on this crack, mm-hmm. but then he... You know, the crack to exit, you have to get kind of sideways and slide out. But he got um, sideways too soon, so he ended up being completely horizontal in the crack. We couldn't even see his head. We could only touch his feet. Uh And it's a nine-inch crack. And the guy on the other side could not reach his head either. So Was he um, conscious? Yeah, he was conscious the whole time. The whole time. Uh But this is a crack that he could not turn his head. He could not move anything but one arm up and down. Does he do caves anymore? He does caves. (laughs) (laughs) He still caves. In fact, after the rescue, he went back the following week. Him and there was two victims. One was him and the other was the victim behind the the person behind him that decided to stay behind him to not let him alone in the dark. And uh, he ended up being a second victim because after 10 hours, this cave was rushing river, was a completely rushing river underneath, uh, very cold, uh, you know, like 45 degrees. And he had a wall on one side and a wall on another in a in a narrow crack with a very cold wind blowing through. So we managed to keep him alive for 11 hours, just covering him with blank, you know, space blanket, building a wind barrier under him, and two newbies with me on the trip, uh, massaging his, uh, his feet and his uh, legs for uh, 10 hours. And that saves that he didn't have compartment syndrome. But I don't want to be in a situation like that ever again. Uh, but, uh, you know, the cave team saved the day. And, uh, you know, now I'm a member of the cave team. I could see how you could do a recovery in a mine shaft because they're much wider. But if it's a wild cave with squeezes and maybe running water, could get pretty difficult to get a body out of there. Yes, uh, it's very difficult. The training that we've done in Thunder Canyon uh, proved that. We we use a sked that is like a litter designed for caves that takes very little space, but it's kind of flexible. And we couldn't get it out from Thunder Canyon uh, in the sked. Uh, we had to get the, the mock victim out and have him go through the holes without the sked because it didn't fit. It can be very difficult. The rescues with the, with the caves, can, even the recoveries can be very difficult. You went to Chiapas recently in Mexico. Yes. And there was what everyone was calling an underground canyon. Mm-hmm. Yes. <laughs> so tell me about this. This is basically like a canyon and a cave combined, yes, right? Yes. And uh, I have first heard about this canyon in 2007 from uh, Matteo Rivadosi in uh, in we were in Ticino and he told me that was the best cave canyon he's ever done and I put it on my list and then I found out that people from Socal Grotto had been there and other people friends of friends had been there so it's something that people visited. But it was not very well known because, they, you know, being a cave, there's the secrecy about around caves, even where they're outside of the U.S., the Americans think that they uh, they need to be the guardians of the caves and keep them secret. Uh, you know, even when there are four Mexican companies guiding through this <laughs> cave, you know, they still think they need to keep them secret and um, protected um, for whatever reason. Yeah, then uh, a couple of them gave me enough information and that we 
could do it on their own you know, because uh, usually they don't do the full trip. The commercial companies do only 25% less, uh, 25% less section of the cave. And uh, we went in without guide to do the whole thing. You know, there is one uh, person that gave me information about there's 44 drops, 44 waterfalls. He gave me information that was like, okay, um, waterfall number one, you can't down climb on the left. Waterfall number two, jump on the right. Waterfall number three, there's an old pin um, bolt behind the the rock on on the right. You know, so there was information about pretty much of all the ball, all the drops. We also found new bolts that uh, then we met the guy that put the bolts in there is one of the commercial companies, Petra Vertical, and uh, they want to commercialize to take people, you know, customers, but it's way too long. It's like 12 hours, 8 to 12 hours, you know, we took 9 uh, to go through the the cave and it's how jumps. Big, how big was your group? Our group was 6 people. 6 people, so it took 6 people 9 hours? 9 hours and thank God we didn't have to rebuild many anchors because they had uh, pretty much new bolts set in from last year. Only one bolt, so they were all single bolts, so we were always backing it up. But most of the drops had uh, new bolts. And uh, when we, whenever we didn't find the bolt, it's like, this is probably a jump. Okay, who wants to jump, jump it first? <laughs> okay. Or we would send somebody down on a mid-anchor, and then, yeah, yeah, it's a jump. Okay, it's a jump. And some others, we would, you know, we would look, okay. It looks, it could be a jump. It and for jump. people who don't understand what a meat anchor is, <laughs> that essentially means another person is the anchor up top. You're repelling off another person, basically. Yes, that's exactly what it is. But it's an amazing canyon. I mean, it's a canyon because I don't know of any other caves that have 43 uh, rappels. And also caves, usually you have to go back up. This is a river. It's flowing on the surface and all of a sudden... It gets into a narrow canyon that is at all effects a canyon, and then all of a sudden the canyon goes underground uh, through a hole, and it doesn't reappear till you know um, five kilometers later uh, at a different, completely different location in a in what it is a kind of a swimming hole and park where the, the river comes out of a hole and creates a waterfall and everybody's there, you know, bathing in, in, the, in the waterfall. And it's amazing. It has uh, jumps and jumps and formations and passages and it's, everything is sculpted. It's like just a canyon with a ceiling, you know. Um, and does it's it have any cave characteristics other than the fact that it is underground? Like, does it have squeezes? No, 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 like no, no squeezes. So it's really, um, really wide. Yes, canyon. it's always uh, like in a canyon. Um, there's no squeezes at all. There's some chambers that are massive. A sala de los halcones. You you cannot light the ceiling. You cannot light the walls on both sides. And there is one big chamber in the middle that has this hundred foot tall. Uh, rimstone dam monolith that uh, glistens in the in the dark like uh, like stars you know and you look at it and it's like it's covered in stars oh yeah I saw the you saw the pictures yeah, yes, yeah, yes. so yes so uh, that is un- unbelievable and it's a rimstone dam the apparently a flowstone that comes in from the side from a hundred feet high and created this monstrous structure and it's just unbelievable uh, unbelievable it's a river it's a river a cave that goes underground and flows and and then pops out at the other side and uh, yeah once you're in you're in you're in for eight to twelve hours in fact they told us uh, that's the usual time that it takes as i said we were lucky because we could reuse a lot of the anchors some of the anchors that we found were like really really old like obviously 30 years old uh, deteriorated iron anchors but it was uh, it was really good it was really good yes and there's not many caves that have an entrance and an exit and 43 rappels or 43 drops in the middle. No? I definitely want to go check that one out. Yeah. You live in San Diego, but if somebody wants to go do canyons in the Pacific Northwest, <laughs> in Oregon or Washington, <laughs> yes, <laughs> you and Tiffany are the people yeah. that everyone says to get in touch with. So how did you go from being all the way at the southernmost point of the United States <laughs> to establishing... And becoming like a knowledgeable source of canyons in Oregon and Washington. All the fault is Tiffany's, okay? Because <laughs> I haven't even. If she was heard here right now. She's like, this is bullshit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, so I hadn't even heard of uh, the Pacific Northwest canyons. I have never done any Pacific Northwest canyons until she saw some of the pictures. And I've done canyons in Hawaii, and they look to me like canyons in Hawaii: basaltic rock, very green scenery. Uh, 
but I had never done them. And a lot of water. And a lot of water, yeah. And a lot of water, much much more than in Hawaii, correct. But uh, the thing that there was this um, Canyoneering Northwest website that has information about many canyons, but it's absolutely unusable because it doesn't have ratings, which canyons are good, which canyons are bad. It doesn't even tell you where the canyons are in the map. So for us, it was like... If it had, you know, 60 canyons documented, we had to read each and every single one of them. You know, and me and Tiffany kind of split up the, the task. Then look at the pictures, which are minuscule and very, you know, difficult to, to see sometimes. And from the description and the pictures, decide, is this a three-star, four-star, five-star canyon? How good does it look? I took that and located all the canyons. Okay, this one is here, this one is here, this one is here, this one is here. And that for 60 canyons, no? And then they, we uploaded them, the information to the wiki. But after that, we were able to say, okay, the good canyons are in this area. The good, uh, some other good canyons are in this area. So we want to go in these two areas. We said, we're going to spend, you know, five days here. We're going to spend five days there. No? But before that, we had to spend like a month reading this this website. You no, know, has information and it's very helpful. But is you know, it's unusable or it's, it's in, unthinkable that anyone that wants to use it has to go through the same process, no? So now we have RobWiki, there's a link to the original uh, beta, but at least you, there's a way to see where the canyons, good canyons are. And, and then we and open RobWiki is a website that has beta information for canyons. At this point, all over the, the, all world, over the world, right? It used yeah. to be mostly just West Coast stuff, but now it's yeah. kind of all over the world. Yeah. And it's a wiki, so it's like Wikipedia to where it's user generated information yes so anyone can join and update the information and luca adds a lot of information <laughs> to rope wiki is, is well i add what i can i index what uh, i don't like um one thing that i recently did and uh, you will see if you go uh, arizona and utah like we had the information of where the canyons were, but there was not information about what is this canyon about? Is this good? Is this bad? I have some friends in Utah and I ask them, but they don't know all about the canyons. And sometimes they don't even want to tell about the canyons or they don't remember. I started looking what websites have information about these canyons and now link uh, wiki links to all of them but uh, incorporates also the ratings so if like somebody said that this canyon was three star on the website and then somebody else said that this canyon was a four star in another website now this canyon shows up as a four stars and a half and it points to both websites and uh, if one has a map that is already been published like canyon chronicles uh, published uh, several canyons on the on uh, utah arizona he gave his permission, they are automatically extracted. So now you can get them in GPX or KML, which cuts down the process of choosing where to go and, and, and doing going from, you know, 10 hours to 10 minutes. That's why now we are trying to, you know, in the next period uh, from Vegas, we are going to go more on Utah, Arizona. But Pacific Northwest, we did this last year for Pacific Northwest and the canyons there. In Washington, they are amazing. Uh, in Oregon, they're beautiful, you know, and there are some canyons that are absolutely super, super technical. Others are easy. Uh, others have a, a shitload of water, uh, 90 CFS. We did Umpqua River, Toquete Falls, and the gorge above Toquete Falls had 90 CFS. It's a monster. That one, we had to find the spot where to drop the rope uh, so that there was a platform underneath from where to jump into the water. And even when you jump into the water, you have to be quick coming back up because you're gone like 200 feet like that. You know, you dunk under the water, you come up, you are 200 feet lower and the next waterfall is coming up, you know, in front of you. So you have to grab a rock before you, you, um, you roll down or you get washed down the next waterfall. So the canyons there are really intense, but you need to like the water. If you don't like the water, you're going to hate those canyons. But Tiffany loves the water. I love the water also. That's how I started canyoning with. And those are the similar things that you can find in, uh, in, in the U.S. to the Alps, to the Ticino and, you know, and uh, Lombardia canyons. And I like more the Washington side because it's more technical and more water and rock and, and hydraulics and jumps and things like that. And Tiffany likes more the Oregon side, which is more greenery and scenery and black uh, rock against green, uh, you know, verdant uh, mountains and things like that and blue water. So, but the, the mix is, is, is really good. So tell us about Tanner Creek. 
<laughs> Tanner Creek. Tanner was a project that took us four days, two weekends to complete the vaulting, and it had never been descended before. It's a it's a waterfall that when you look at it, it's a monster. It's called Wakela Fall at the bottom, and then above it, it has a full gorge with several waterfalls that are incredible. When we visited first uh, with Tiffany in spring, we, before we even thought about um, descending, there was a side, a side tributary that we could see that was flowing so hard that it was flowing over the gorge and hitting the wall at the other side. And when we tried in August, we saw that this was dry, but we could see the gorge now that, you know, it's just carved into granite, deep gorge with white waterfall falling from all over. And then we went in from the rim. So we started from the bottom. We decided, okay, let's go to the rim. From the rim, we approached the, the final section of the gorge and we tried to come down from the waterfall. And we found a, a side where I could put a bolt and you could go right next to the water, but in, without getting, you know, pushed down in the water or, or drowned by the hydraulics and stuff like that. And that was the first day, just that, you know, reach the gorge from the side, um, drainage and drop down 200, 150 feet into the gorge above and, and set a bolt so that we could come down from the waterfall. Then the next second day, we were going to do the, the, the approach from behind and, and, and finish the approach. I saw, showed the video from me standing on, on the top of the, the, fan, the gorge of what was behind me and what was in front of me. We showed it to the rest of the team that we had assembled. And two of them decided that it's too much water. We are out. You know, it's like, no, no, I think we can do it. No, no, we, we are out. You know, <laughs> we, we, we cannot do that, that, that stuff. And I, I would try to convince them, no, there's a ledge. There's a no a five inch ledge that we can stand I can put a bolt you know and then we can traverse and find another platform underneath and I said no 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 we can't and then you know Tiffany was trying to find people to, to come with us in this first descent but the second day we, we didn't have enough people for a rim team uh, two group going down the, through the canyon and because there's a, a pool the, the crux of this is a pool that you have to jump into because there's an hydraulic to access this pool you have to go all the way to the end of a log that is hanging on the edge and either rappel from the log or, or jump off and then it's a pool that is an overhanging pool that ends in a waterfall free fall and there's nothing to grab on there's a five inches ledge on one side at the end of the pool but that's it you know and uh, and rushing water everywhere so i had to go in from the rim on the top of this uh, this pool and set up seven bolt traverse some bolts inside the pool so people would be able to grab on the webbing before they get washed out and then set up the traverse so that you can get far enough from the next waterfall so you can rappel down next to it but not engulfed by it and land magically on a platform from where you can just then jump without getting sucked into the hydraulics. You know? But you look at the picture, it's just like, how the hell are they going to get into, into there? No? And uh, yeah, it works. <laughs> we managed to find a, a route that works. Now we hope that the poles are still alive in the next spring, <laughs> the next summer, when we try to go back. <laughs> because we did you don't want to play seven bolts again? Uh, yeah, I don't want to. In, and, in the, <laughs> and you left out that you're doing this in the water with the water beating against you. Yes. And then and it takes, what, 15, 20 minutes to place a bolt? Um, it depends. When you're fast? <laughs> it, it depends. When you're rappelling 150 feet from the top, you know, and then you are uh, pendulum in, in the pool to try to get to a place where to set the bolts, and, and then you are putting a bolt in and then hanging from the bolt, hoping it holds to put the next one. And, uh, yeah, it's about half an hour per bolt with a drill. With right. a drill. With, a, with an electric drill. <laughs> with an right? electric drill and a hammer and everything. I did the first day, I did the three bolts, minimalistic setup. Uh, then the second day, decided this is the way it's going to go and put three more and two more at the bottom. The following weekend, we, we finally did the full descent, you know. And in fact, I didn't do it because I was at the top of the of the problematic area. So you have to go back and do it. I have to go back and do it. But uh, I had to be there because it's like if they cannot catch the webbing, I have to catch them before they get flown out. <laughs> And uh, that's the only way, no? So yeah, that's that's something we will we want to go back next. And also that that area, there's so many so many canyons that waiting to be open, so many that is incredible. Are you do you plan to go back and establish more, or you wanna you said you wanna move on to Utah? And so as I said, my daughter is living with me, you know, but she's gonna to go to college soon next year. You know? finally get rid of her. <laughs> yes. So then I'm more mobile, and I've been talking with uh, we've been talking with Tiffany about maybe going back to the Pacific Northwest uh, for a while. 
because it's a fantastic playground, especially now that California is becoming a desert. You know, not even now with El Nino year, we have some decent flow in there. You wouldn't know today. People listening (laughs) won't know this, but today a bunch of us tried to go do a canyon. We're in San Diego right now, and it was raining. And what doing a canyon turned into was my car stuck in the mud and everyone helping get my car out of the mud and then us leaving because we weren't sure we could get out after we ran the canyon. Stuck in the mud in a ditch, you know? Yeah. <laughs> pretty, uh, much, yeah. pretty much, pretty yeah. much. Because it was not only stuck in the mud, it was in a ditch. <laughs> so now you need to reveal your secret. So everybody wants to know how it is that you can travel so much and go do so many things <laughs> and, and raise a kid and be a responsible adult who pays his bills. <laughs> yeah. So what's the secret? What are you doing? What I do, I, I work with computers, you know, and uh, yes, it's true. I've been working with computers since I was a kid, you know, and I'm good at it. I get to be lucky enough to have them uh, work for me sometimes. Are you able to take work with you when you travel or not at all? I try not to, but uh, many times I have to, especially in some determined periods where, uh, you know, there has to be response and timely manner. I have to. So then it's limited to being a place that has internet connection and a good internet connection. And nowadays, many people, you know, can work from everywhere. Um, you met Eric. You know, he's he works one week and then the next week he's taking off. My other friend uh, Michelle, she works remotely, uh, so she's in Bend, and she works from Bend, and then. If she wants to go to the Pacific Northwest, uh, she's working from Portland, you know, for a month. Or she's working from Seattle for a month. And then during that time, she's, you know, able to go explore the canyons. Engineers that work with computers, uh, develop software, have that, that freedom, you know, that other people might not have. Like teachers, they cannot leave their, you know, their uh, <laughs> children and, and teach them from, uh, you know, 17 miles, 1700 miles away. Like they so. teach them on FaceTime. Yeah, they can. They can try, but it's like the parents might not get it, uh, might not like it very well. No? But yeah, there's many ways people can use to do uh, to follow the team. But there is a book that I like a lot that is called The Four Hour War Week. You know, several people don't like it because yeah, I've heard people say it's bullshit. Yeah, well, it's only the book maybe will be bullshit, but I, I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you something that does work, you know. And uh, for me, it was eye opener. I went to do an MBA when I was with Hewlett Packard, and the reason for me to go to do the MBA is because I was uh, an engineer. The only me to go progress was to become a manager, you know, and then became a manager. And I absolutely hated because uh, I started developing uh, software when I was 12, you know, and I've been developing software since since then because I like it. So for me to put me uh, to manage people and have uh, make slides was, you know, basically to 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 kill me, no? But that was the only way for me to, to do a career, to advance in my career. Well, during the MBA, I um, met somebody, you know, the several tutors, etc. And one of them recommended a book that is um, How to Play to Your Strengths. And it's like, if you are mediocre, um, you know, managing people, you don't like managing people, you're going to always be mediocre managing people. That doesn't matter what you, you try. You always never be, you know, good at that. What you should try to do is how to monetize on what you do well and do that instead. You know, instead of, instead of fixing your, your flaws, uh, you should uh, try to play, uh, you know, monetize on your strengths. And uh, that book was called Discover Your Strengths. And that was an eye-opener for me because it's like, I shouldn't be a manager, so screw this shit because I've never been a good manager and I hate it, you know, and I absolutely hate it. And what I should do is find a way to, you know, try to make uh, software, uh, make money with doing software trying until I find a way. And uh, I think that's what people should realize, you know. Many times is finding the right place, uh, finding the right thing, or, or sometimes it's a little bit of luck too. But even teachers can do that. You know, I have a friend, uh, she started uh, developing, you know, materials for other teachers so that she can sell um, for special education and and she doesn't have to be teaching uh, kids, but uh, she can develop the materials that then others can use to, to, to teach kids. No? So it's like uh, try to find a way to enjoy what you, what you do without uh, you know, work being a, a hassle, without being a, a chain that keeps you from doing what you really want to do. That's my recommendation. You know, Tiffany still has to learn, for instance, because... <laughs> 
She has very limited vacation, but uh, when it doesn't uh, seem like she has limited vacation. Uh, it's different. Uh, when she finishes a project, then she can take vacation, or she has that time that while she finds some other project, and then right. we can use that. But uh, it's like we cannot time it. You know, it's like I want you to go a month in in summer to Europe to do canyons in the Alps, and she's like, I cannot do it because I have a deadline in freaking August. You know? So we have to wait and see to line up. Uh, things like that but um yeah maybe someday we can change that too if people want to find out what you do if they wanted to see pictures if they wanted to find your beta where should they go online well the first thing they should know is it's all legal <laughs> <laughs> it's all legal the second the beta i would i would say the rob wiki is where i post all of the beta uh, it's not be- because other places are bad it's just because other places are either in french other places are either closed uh, for only other people can post and and only them and i f- i found that wiki is really flexible for me and what it doesn't have i add it to it because i'm a software <laughs> developer and the and the and the system is open i'm just a user no people think i own ruby no i'm just a user no benjamin is the one that started it and david is the one that administers it and i'm just a contributor but it's just like i want a map on this thing well can i develop one yeah sure here nah. <laughs> give me the manual i read it okay i can i can make a map out of this you know and uh and I added a bunch of functionality that I wanted, like the water flow analysis, to, because I got screwed two times in Washington uh, because we went, traveled all the way there to do canyons and, and the canyons were flowing too hard. So now there's the water flow analysis. I can check how much water is flowing in a canyon, uh, you know, miles away from the comfort of my home or from the car while we are driving there, no? So, yeah, I recommend Wiki, and we post everything there, uh, all the adventures that we do. Caves, people want to keep them secret, so uh, some caves, Mexican caves are posted, but American caves, very few of them are there. The ones that are, that cannot be vandalized. Because, you know, van- Americans are all vandals, so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, they, 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 should be, uh, they should be protected from themselves. But, uh, yeah, there's some caves there, but uh, only the ones that are uh, sea caves. The ocean drills against these caves continuously, so there's nothing you can protect there, no? Others that are, you know, have formations are not are not documented but mexico has a great great number of canyons a great number of caves and and it's it's a, a great country with friendly people and very few americans have ever gone to mexico it's unbelievable you know i cannot believe it and it's just next door so yeah everything is there even europe now the wiki indexes information from uh, european websites so and translates automatically to French. I don't speak French. That's why I added it because there's this great French canyoneering website called the Sende Canyons, which is all in French, and I don't speak French. I don't understand shit of French, you know. So um, now it's all translated for me, <laughs> and I use it. And if others find it useful, great, you know. Um, but I I develop mostly so that I can use it. Uh, find what are the best canyons in the Pyrenees what are the best canyons in the Alps you know what are the best canyons in in Sardinia or, or Sicily or anywhere you know so that's I recommend people to check that out do you have any kind of website of your own a place you, you post your own things or Instagram or anything like that I have a Facebook account but that's and I have an Instagram account and the only reason I have that I'm adding a module so that you can click on a point and get most recent pictures around that point so you can find out how the water flows are flowing in that area and uh, without you know spending hours searching the internet no? so that's why I have an Instagram account I don't post anything it's just so that I, can, <laughs> I, can, I can get what other people post about all over the world whenever we want to check you know water flow somewhere but uh, no I pretty much post all the beta I have on Rubiki and my personal stuff on, on Facebook yeah I don't have any And blog. you probably don't want people going to find you on Facebook and stalking you. <laughs> and no, crazy. there's enough Russian girls you know, sending me messages. You know, I, don't, I don't need any more of those. No, thank you. <laughs> no. no, and the other thing, you know, how I started posting to the wiki is uh, from uh, Chris Brennan. You met Chris Brennan, right? Chris Brennan so, is the has, person who established a lot of the canyons in Southern California and Los Angeles area and wrote up all the early beta that everyone used for decades, I guess. Yeah, so that's uh, when I started canyoneering in the U.S., you know, when I googled up canyoneering after my ex-wife left, Chris Brennan website showed up, and I saw all this information, and I 
I was, this is great. And I joined, you know, a trip uh, that Randy Poor organized and Chris Brennan organized to Eton. It wasn't that good, honestly, because it was November and Eton was not flowing. <laughs> but, but it was a great kind of, I was super uh, grateful that they organized a trip com- bringing complete strangers. But then I found this guy that publishes all his adventures and he publishes them so that others can follow in his footsteps on their own, you know, on their own pace. Like when everybody else was like, no, 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 we cannot tell you where the caves are. First we'll meet you and then if we like you, we'll take you, you know. But this guy is just publishing all his adventures and giving you exactly all the information needed to go do them on your own. And I thought, when I grow up, I want to go, I want to be with like him, you know, because I want to inspire others to become what they want to become without having to kiss anybody's asses, you know, <laughs> uh, or having to go anybody's, you know, master keeper uh, that decides if you're worthy or not, you know. Nobody limiting you to, I'll tell you where you can go. No, it's like, you want to go there? This is what you need to do. And uh, just be careful, you know, just be sure you're ready, but... You know, if you're not ready, make sure you survive and learn from it. And, uh, <laughs> and that's how you, you grow, you know. So that's why. I think that's probably the best place we could have to stop this recording. <laughs> okay. I, don't, I don't think we could probably wrap it up any better than that. I'm going to drive back to Los Angeles and we're going to turn on some lights in here so we can see what we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> All right. All right. Thanks, Luca. I think you'll all be happy to know that Luca's daughter, who he affectionately refers to as his chain, has indeed graduated from high school and is now off to Cal Poly. So he, in his own words, is free. And now, instead of just traveling a dozen or so times a year, perhaps he can travel every week to some new location and make all of the rest of us jealous of his world travels. Speaking of which, he was recently in the Pyrenees doing what he calls crazy-ass water canyons with a local guy named Thor. And if Luca thinks they're crazy-ass canyons, they're probably crazy-ass canyons. And before anyone emails the show to tell me that we should have spent more time talking about cave rescues with Luca, well, we did. We chose to edit some of that out of the show because of some of the sensitive information regarding ongoing investigations. So if that section felt a little rushed and it felt like we left that topic prematurely, that is why. And perhaps one day when some of these cases have closed, Luca can come back and share some of these really interesting stories. Luca also asked me to point out that RopeWiki is now an international site because Barranquismo.net, the most popular Spanish canyon beta site, has recently shut down and they did agree to transfer all of their beta to RopeWiki. So if you want to travel to Spain where they have some really great canyons that I have never personally visited but many people I know have, you can get that beta on RopeWiki. So go there. And you should go to gogetoutside.com slash podcast. Look for this episode 32 with Luca Carabini. There you will find a crap ton of photos. He gave me all kinds of photos. If you want to see what that Tanner Creek looked like that we discussed earlier in the show, that's a great place to check it out. Or if you want to see what that cave slash canyon in Chapas looks like, You'll find photos of that there as well. As always, you'll find links to things we discussed in the show, such as the book for our work week, the book Discover Your Strengths, links to RopeWiki, links to RopeWiki Explorer, which is an application Luca developed for RopeWiki specifically for people exploring undocumented canyons. You also can find that Tanner Creek beta if you have the courage to check that one out on your own. And a link to a video I put together last year, a teaser for a larger project called Scuba Climbers, which prominently features Luca, especially in the beginning of the video. So if you want to see that guy in action, go check out that video. In the last few weeks, I've gotten some really great emails, so I want to thank all of you who have sent in those emails. And if you listening would like to be the awesome kind of person that emails this show, well, it is quite easy. You open up whatever email client or email device you use and send a message to go at butcherbirdstudios.com. Are you trapped in the 1940s and unable to send an email to this show? Well, don't worry. You can leave us a voicemail at 818-925-0106. And if you are living in the current day and age and you do have access to the internet via 
one of many devices that will allow you to do that these days. Run by whatever you're using to to listen to this show, be it iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, whatever, and do us a favor. Subscribe to the show if you're not subscribed, and then please rate and review the show. It helps us out way more than you think it does, and I personally appreciate that a whole lot. Next time on the show, come back July 16th, Sherry Watson. She's a set decorator, musician, ballerina, yoga practitioner, and recent climbing enthusiast. Come back next time. See you then.